Welcome to our first episode of the Ancient Paths podcast, where we're discussing issues that are relevant to our modern day, but as well as looking back at wisdom that, that we have access to, the, the holy books, the, the great teachers that we have all come in contact with, and then applying that into our lives and making an impact into our culture and the people we, we run into. Um, we are having this discussion as, as a team between um, me, uh, David, and Joseph. And if you'd like to talk a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, um, Abraham, Michael. Um, I'm Mikhail Ben Avraham. Uh, I am a Balteshuva. Uh, I became observant uh, in 2000, late 2004. Um, yeah, I've had my ups and downs. Uh, I'm Hasidic, uh, Breslov, uh, and Sephardic. And uh, other than that, let's let's just get going. <laughs> well, and this is also for myself. I've I've done outreach with the crypto Jewish community in Texas and done uh, presentations and lectures. And the the biggest question that that you come across as you meet people on the street or in our professional life is why. Focus your life in relation to God and how is God real to to us? And there's a lot of philosophical questions about the existence of God or how to prove or disprove that. But I want to talk about on a personal level, um, uh, Michal, what what was the thing that that spoke to you about the existence of God even growing up and as your life became more observant and, and more religious? Well, again, I'm a Balthashuva and <clears throat> initially I was raised uh catholic and then pentecostal as my mom uh took me out of the catholic church um and uh i had experiences as a child that were very difficult for me to wrap my head around so um for example uh there was a, a dove while my friends and i were playing outside that crashed into one of the apartment windows and its wing was just completely like broken in half and uh, took it to my dad to see if he could fix it. He wasn't in the house. He had stepped out to do laundry. And so I took it over to my friend's house who was outside with me in the first place. And his older brother uh, had just gotten a set of Bible encyclopedias and uh, from a Christian background. But uh, when we came in with this injured dove, he had one of the encyclopedias open. He had just gotten them that day and he was just browsing through them. And when he saw the dove in his younger brother's hands, his countenance just went completely ghost white. And without saying a word, he just turned the book around and shoved it towards us. And it was open to dove symbolism, Holy spirit. And so that was interesting. Um, but it didn't really do anything for me. We, he didn't know what to do with the bird. Uh, we took it back over to my house. My dad was home. Uh, my dad's always been very good with animals. And he splinted the bird's wing with a couple of popsicle sticks and uh, I want to say a rubber band. Um, and we put it on our balcony. We lived on the second floor. And the next morning, I got up to go see the dove and it was gone. And I thought, oh, no, it must have fallen between the, the gap, 
between the floor and the fence for the balcony. And I stepped up on, looked down into the courtyard, didn't see it. And then I heard fluttering over my head and I looked up and saw it and I freaked out because it started flying away and I ran and I woke my mom up and my mom didn't believe that I was serious and she finally came out and saw it and sure enough with the rubber banded splint and all it was flying away um that to me was interesting and was much more significant than just bringing the bird in while he had the encyclopedias open but the combined uh events actually made me start thinking more seriously um aside from that uh for me before I could read, I was quoting scripture. I don't know why. I don't know how. Uh, I'm completely fine with skeptical explanations, like I heard them a lot from my mom or somebody. Um, but uh, it impressed my, my grandparents, my Catholic grandparents and my mom enough that uh, it impressed my mom enough that when I could finally read and I saw the sign that said that we were Catholic and started crying, uh, and by the way, I don't want to imply that Catholics are all evil or anything remotely like that. That's not what the, that was about. Uh, I do, as a Hasid, believe in a type of reincarnation. It's not similar to uh, uh, Buddhist or Hindu reincarnation. Uh, it really just means that we are made up of spiritual free connections to lives in a same in a similar way that we're made up of DNA from previous uh, people, but I personally think that my reaction when I finally read Catholic on that sign, uh, I started bawling and it just was inconsolable. And I think that it was because in a past life, uh, one of the parts of my soul had experienced probably something very very negative involving the catholic church uh in, in uh, terms of hypnosis i'm actually specialized as a regression therapist but i don't uh i i can't say for sure that that's the case because you know there's always the the skeptical contrary arguments that somebody might have uh, imagined something or maybe they saw it or read it in a book and they're just recalling it in a distorted fashion. Um, and I'm, I try to be as rational of a mystic as I possibly can. So uh, I, try, I usually use rationalism as a first approach and then step into the mystical to try and understand things. Let's, let's take a, a break right there. So, so there's multiple things you brought up that I would like to, to uh Online. Um, so you mentioned the, the image of a dove as depicted in Christianity as a symbol of the Ruach HaKodesh or the, the, the wind of, of holiness or the Holy Spirit in Christian terms. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see that anywhere in the, the Torah, the Tanakh, other than no. the passage of Noah where he sends a dove out and it comes back with an olive There's, leaf? With, with Noah's uh, situation, um, we definitely see the the dove or the dove, sorry, the dove bringing a sign of uh, of restoration, healing, peace. Um, you know, God's judgment had uh, subsided. Um, you know, we could return to some 
degree of normalcy uh, kind of a, a, of a message. Um, and if you look at the nature of a dove, they're very peaceful, they're very placid. Uh, it's not the kind of bird that uh, you have to worry about, you know, doing anything to you, really. Um, I was actually really shocked. I was 11 when that incident happened. And I was really shocked at the fact that, like, my friend Doug could just grab the bird from the, the rocks in the courtyard of the apartment. And it didn't even try to fight. Didn't even look like it was threatening to bite or anything, which I, you know, later found out that's just the nature of doves. They're just extraordinarily peaceful. And even when they fight with each other, they don't really fight like other birds. Um, I've got a couple of doves, that, not personally, but uh, right outside my balcony here. They're gray. Um, but uh, they, they're, they're pretty cute. They're, Anyway, that's totally a sidetrack. Um, <laughs> but they get into little uh, territorial fights with some of the other birds. But in terms of the Torah, um, I, I don't know of any other reference uh, other than with Noah. Um, in the Tanakh, I know doves occur symbolically, but it's, it's almost poetic. Um, I don't really see the... The, the connection to Ruach HaKodesh emphasized in any way in the Tanakh. Um, that's a Christian thing. But at the time, I believe, ha see, Hashem speaks to us according to what we can understand at the time. He doesn't just, you know, upload a bunch of data into our brain and just say, boom, now you get it. Now, sometimes that actually does happen. Uh, but on average, that's not the way things go. We have our... Ex our, our existence we have our experience and from that we have a frame of reference and we learn from things based on our understanding of that frame of reference and at the time i understood that to be hashem intervening in some way because uh there was it, it was a very difficult spiritual time for me as a child um because i had sort of gotten my mom to where she was convinced that we should vacate the the Roman Catholic Church, um, but then we started church shopping basically, and she was just taking me everywhere, and until she got somewhere that I felt comfortable. And at eleven, or actually no, at that point it was eight years old. Um, the uh, the first church that we really got into um, that. I felt somewhat comfortable with was the assemblies of God. And it had nothing to do with their theology or anything like that. It was because they had a fun youth group. I was a little kid. So, you know, I got distracted. Um, and it, yet still Hashem led me from that through that path. Um, you know, I, I met the individual that I was talking about, my friend Doug and his brother, Richard, and this dove incident happened and that led me towards a branch of Christianity that I didn't know existed uh, because we had been arguing for a full year when that dove incident happened about the existence of the Trinity. And uh, I had actually gotten in trouble in second grade for in parochial school for questioning this idea myself. And I was, 
uh, actually in trouble for several times until I got expelled from Catholic school, um, where my mom worked uh, in Long Beach, California. And then uh, it was not long after that, that we started going to the Assemblies of God. And then when we were going there, and the, this Doug and Richard had moved into my apartment complex. And the very first day that he interacted with me, Doug, not Richard, um, came up to me and he said, so are you a Christian? And I was at the time, I was like, yeah, I was reading a, some Christian comic book about superhuman strength characters like Samson. I can't remember what the comic was, but they, uh, he, he then turned and asked me, do you know that there's no such thing as the Trinity? And I had gotten into a lot of trouble for questioning that just a couple of years earlier. And so I started arguing with him and um, in our arguments, I would go, I would listen to what they said. If I didn't have an answer, I would write it down and I would take it to my youth pastor and I would show him or to the senior pastor and I would show him. And then I would bring their answers back to Doug and Richard. And this went on for a full year. And then the dove thing happened. And so initially I started going to their church after that happened. And I started learning uh, about modalism, a, a type of uh, oneness theology, which claims that God is not a divisible unity. He is a singular unity. And uh, that there is one personage that we could call God, one personal conscious mind. Um, and uh, for those types of Christians, they believe that that is Jesus. Um, I no longer believe that. Uh, I believe Hashem is Hashem. God is God. And everything in creation, everything inside the box is not God. Um and that includes the totality of the box. I, I do not believe in pantheism, which says that uh, all of the universe is divine. And uh, I do believe that there's an element of truth to that. Uh, I believe God is within everything, but that doesn't make everything God. Um, so as far as uh, my, my personal experiences, um, you know, early on, I got into, uh, like, in, in the gap between Christianity and Judaism, I went through a lot. I went through uh, black magic. Uh, it was very amalgamated. Uh, not quite sure uh, that I could call it. I certainly wouldn't call it Wicca because I had only tried to derive the practice from elsewhere. Um, since Wicca has only been around since uh, I think 1954, somewhere around there. Um, and then uh, I got involved in Buddhism, which I still have a tremendous respect for as a philosophy, not, a, not so much as a religion. Uh, I have issues with its cosmology more than anything else. Um, and I, I went to school for comparative religion and uh, looked at different religions and ultimately, logically, uh, and the way that life just kept directing me, it brought me back to Judaism. And there was just way too many individual cases for me to specifically cite without us uh, getting into an entire episode about those experiences. 
Well, the reason I thought it was important for you to talk about your experience is that a lot of people assume that people that believe in God, it just, it's because that's how they were raised or that's just the default belief that you have. So you're not a controversial person. Right, and, right. Um, I don't like to go into my spiritual journey because I also studied different modes and different perspectives. And the relevant component of it is that every religious system has a way to make sense of what they experience. And, you know, it's not about one religion being more accurate than others, but it's about what mm -hmm. makes the most sense based on what we can perceive. So, you know, right. I have respect for agnostics because they say, I cannot tell you yes or no until I see the evidence. Atheists, mm -hmm. on, on, in my perspective, are very arrogant to say, well, I know that there is nothing and I cannot be persuaded otherwise. And there's a lot of right. religious people who are also very arrogant, who they're so um, like confident in their ignorance And they say, well, I know that I know that I know. And it's like, well, you haven't experienced the whole universe. You haven't um, studied different perspectives. You haven't given other views a chance. And you're just stuck in this one uh, modality. And until you, you kind of look around and see the, the different philosophical perspectives and religious perspectives is that you can assess things better. It's like if someone said, um, you know, about any uh, theory or topic in the scientific world, if they made up their mind before actually studying the facts. To me, that's, right. that's, uh, that's limited understanding. And, that, and maybe what they have is the most uh, reasonable approach, but without stepping out and being willing to, to look at, at, the, at the other views, you're not able to grow. So, um, you know, they had a, there's a documentary on YouTube where they have this uh, Hasidic kid from Chabad. Uh, I think he's Satmar. And he's so in love with God and so, like, knows that everything happens for a reason. But that's the only thing that his dad has told him. And I like that childlike faith that, um, that, that has that type of um, uh, all um, related to their experience. But they also have to uh, struggle and suffer and, and see the contradictions and the possible conflicts with their faith for it to be a very sturdy and, and stout uh, relationship with God. If it's, if it's a, a, some type of um, sheltered uh, experience with God, I think it can, it can really be dismantle when someone goes to college or when someone has a, a heartache or, mm -hmm. or a death in their family. And in the Hasidic world, you hear people say that the, the more they suffer, the more they, they come to peace with God being in control. Mm -hmm. I know um, yeah. I was reading this one book, and, uh, the, the Garden of Faith, and, and it's, they believe in predestination so much that um, – Even if you get run over by a car, that was God's will. And I really struggle with that because I believe that, you know, when, when Christians say, well, Jews don't believe in Jesus because of this or that, I, I tell them Jews don't believe in Jesus usually because of the Odyssey, because 
the idea of the Mashiach is that the Mashiach is going to bring complete peace and restoration. And until that is done, you can close the case on it. So don't come and tell us that, that it's because of hardness of heart or it's because of blinders or it's because of this. It's because the world is still in, in, in struggle and that for the fullness of, of Mashiach to, to fully be revealed is this idea that everything has to come to, to its full fruition. And the same thing goes for God. Like some people lose their faith in God because the world is chaotic to them or is uh, destructive or whatever. And it's this wrong premise that everything has to be a certain way for God to be real. Um, so have you come across that where people tell you your, your beliefs are ridiculous because the world's in chaos, the universe is in chaos. And for you to believe in any particular perspective, you're kind of wasting your time. It's all just dreams and fantasies. Oh, for sure. I have, I have a number of uh, atheist friends. Um, uh, most of them fall into the category of weak atheism, which the, the difference between weak and strong atheism, the positions of weak and strong atheism are pretty much just uh, one personalizes it, the other one makes it like it's a declaration. So a strong atheist says there's absolutely no God. Anybody who believes that's an idiot. Um, and a weak atheist says, I personally don't believe that there's a God. You died. I'm not convinced. Um, most of my atheist friends are in the second category. Um, but I have a couple that are strong atheists, and we just agree not to talk about religion because that kind of stuff, uh, their view is, for me, uh, extraordinarily closed-minded and arrogant. Uh, at least my view is informed by actual experiences. Um, you know, I have had a lot of things happen. Um, uh, I'll give a, a, a far more miraculous example than the Dove just before we move on. Uh, I was at the airport in Florida, in Orlando, and this uh, little girl was playing on the conveyor belts before they turned on, and her parents weren't close enough to her so that they could grab her when the, cl when the alarm came on to alert everybody that the conveyors were about to turn on. And so when the alarm came on, they went and looked for her, and by the time they got to her, the, uh, the actual conveyor had kicked on and swept her off her feet, and she busted her head on the, the frame of the conveyor. The people, the parents grabbed her. They were freaking out. She was screaming. She was bleeding from her top right, like the top right part of her head, like right up around here. Um, it wasn't super bad, but it probably would have needed stitches. And this Jewish guy, very Hasidically dressed, walks over. While the crowd, there's a crowd of people gathering around to make sure this little girl's okay. And he just says, make way, I've, I've got medical training. And so people separate. And before he even touches the girl, I was at the exact same angle of him. So I could see directly through this crowd of people and see this girl. He said, Mayim Rafa, when the blood met with her tears. And immediately... I saw this, the tear, the blood started to turn clear and then back up into the wound and then seal back shut. I had never seen anything remotely like that in my life, not even on sci-fi. Um, I did recently see a chemical reaction that can do something similar. So, of course, somebody could say it was staged, but <laughs> I don't think so. 
Um, uh, you know, I was there. That little girl was genuinely hurt. There was nobody near to, it, like, it was not staged. Um, and I've seen things like that. Um, you know, even when I was Christian, I saw miracles. So what is the explanation an atheist has for, mir- for the miraculous? Other than delusion, I've never heard them give one. So if things are happening and everybody can testify to something happening, they have no answer. And what makes Judaism so special to me is that our religion began not with one person having some special revelation, but with 600,000 families having a special revelation at the same time. You can call that mass hysteria, but it doesn't explain the perpetual continued existence of the Jewish people. Um, you know, I've, I've started to, to get a little bit more into like biblical criticism and textual criticism uh, due to our mutual rabbi friend. Um, <laughs> um, but I still think that more of the narrative portion of the Torah is literal than uh, metaphor. Um, and I think that because I've seen miracles that while they don't stand up on the scale, they certainly stand up on quality. Um, and I can't deny their existence because you can't deny your own personal experiences. Uh, and when somebody has personal experiences with a sufficient amount of people that can verify that the same thing happened, it makes it very hard to convince yourself you're crazy. Well, I come from a, from another angle. Um, you know, at my job as a chaplain, I always hear doctors, nurses, um, some of the administrators talk about miracles and I freak out. I'm like, can you please leave that to me? Like, why are you sitting down with a family where their loved one is dying and you're saying, well, we need you to make decisions on their end of life, you know, care, but mm-hmm. there's always miracles. And I'm like, I've been doing this for 10 years and I still haven't seen one miracle in the sense of someone recovering fully of a really bad illness. And, you know, you can talk about like waking up in the morning being a miracle and having your life extended when you have um, comorbidities or a diagnosis of, of death. Like those are miracles that, that are tangible. But something like what you experienced in a, in a situation, I haven't come across and it's not that I doubt it or that I that I put God in a box, but that the whole point of a miracle from a biblical perspective is something that is out of the ordinary that happens once in a long period of time, according to the biblical record. Maybe there was little miracles that were happening all the time, but only the ones that are depicted are in this, you know, even in Jewish tradition, they say that the closer you were to the the revelation of Sinai, the more miracles, the more um, you know, manifestations of God's uh, wonders, and now it's more diminished. So this idea that, that there's miracles everywhere, like I know there's some Pentecostal groups that promise a miracle every time you go visit them and things like that, it makes it silly and kind of uh, it trivializes the idea of God intervening in nature and bringing about a positive outcome. So it's kind of like 
you pray with the desire of, of that happening, but you live under the natural uh, system. And, and it's not like one works against the other or they're completely separate, but there's this idea that just like prophecy or other um, things that, that God gives to, to his uh, anointed uh, chosen ones, it cannot be easily um, like, like passed around or, or, or taken away from that, that very special place of when a miracle happens, you'll know it. And what you see from, from a lot of these preachers and people who um, they, they take advantage of people's faith and people's um, desire for, for God to, to do something. And, and they start saying that, that it happened, but it was limited to their faith or limited to their ability to believe. For those who just uh, joined the, our program, we are discussing the existence of God. We're your host, um, David Ben-Joseph, and go ahead. Mikhail Ben-Abraham. And the reason that we decided to, to address this topic as our first um, issue to discuss is that why even talk about Kabbalah, Jewish uh, theology, um, biblical interpretation, and all those things, if we can't get a grasp on the, the whole idea of God, and we've talked about um, Christian views, Jewish views, uh, overall philosophical ideas related to God, miracles, personal revelation. But I think the the thing that most people want would want to know if you're new to Judaism or to religion is uh, why even have a God? Like uh, it seems that in, in modern society, especially in America, people have kind of gotten rid of God or they've, justify God out of existence because it makes them uncomfortable. Like if there is a, a divine ruler who we keep our lives accountable to, who protects and, and, and guides the, the universe in its um, constant um, rotation and interaction between different beings and all that, like it puts the, the human at, a, at an awkward place. You're on the spotlight that, you know, there's there's many views through medieval times of God being like a an accountant that keeps track on all your actions. And then when you're done, so many good and so many bad, he can use that against you or a judge or, um, you know, the atheists usually like to call God a, a, a very um, demanding three-year-old that uh, tells the Israelites to go here, to go there, to fight these people, to do that. And that's their way of dismissing the idea of God that everything you see in scripture is, is this very, um, like everything happens in, in God's uh, perspective and it's trip is not trivial, but it's almost like, um, what's that word when, when someone just decides things out of uh, the blue without um, thinking things through arbitrary, there's arbitrary, you know, kill this group and then make a deal with the other one and, you know, take slaves and don't take slaves and all these things. And they use that against um, mm -hmm. the revelation of God is, is maybe it was a human created perspective on a deity and they couldn't make up their mind on how God interacts with people or whatever. One of my professors talked about it as God being like an artist that he was temperamental 
And that at times he would get sad and want to destroy the world. And at other times he was uh, happy and, and willing to, to give it another chance. And that being temperamental and having a complex personality does not make it a, a human thing. It's more that we reflect those type of emotions. Uh, how would you tackle those, that type of a question and, and that type of challenge to the idea of, of the biblical God? Uh, I would I would kind of respond with it with uh, an an argument that atheists use actually. Um, the argument is an epistemological one about whether or not we can know whether whether God exists. Uh, they usually say that you know if you look at ants or uh, microbes, do they really know that we exist or are we so transcendent from their experience that they have no frame of reference to understand us? So how could we possibly understand God? How much more so for the atheist who denies the very existence of God? So their perspective is already poisoned before the, before they even begin. They've poisoned the well with bias. It's not possible for them to have a, an unbiased examination of the the of the the actual theology so as soon as they start seeing anything theological anything metaphysical they immediately approach it with an interpretation of what it was that's not correct to begin with uh sort of a parallel example is many people have this image of god being this white uh, long bearded white beard guy sitting on a gold chair floating around on the clouds. That is absolutely not the case. Um, in fact, according to Judaism, God is a completely non-physical being. There are minority views that have sprung up here and there in arguments, but there, there's no widely accepted view ever in history where God is a physical being. So this idea, which keeps popping up, but usually from uh, non-Jewish sources. You have, uh, obviously in paganism, they have this very physical idea of, of divinity. Um, in, uh, and without any insult implied, I, I want to include Hinduism and paganism. Um, even though I know at the earliest and highest levels of Hinduism, they do also believe in a single infinite an incomprehensible transcendent being um, whether or not that being is conscious. Uh, that's sort of the, dis one of the big disputes between Hinduism and Judaism. Um, we believe in a personal conscious living creator. We do not believe that this being is confined to a body, a specific location or anything like that. We're talking about something that we don't even accept we have words to define. Uh, Rambam came up with a negative theology specifically because anything we say is only going to be partially true. Nothing we say positive about God is ever going to be 100% true. Even if we say God is love, absolutely God is not not love. Everything we know about love, God absolutely is. But is that all he is? By no means. He's also justice. Uh, he definitely has an element of wrath. Like there's, there's such intense complexity 
within the unity of God that when somebody makes those kinds of challenges, it just shows that they don't really understand the concept of God correctly to begin with. And so I usually try to help them understand, and I'll even take a step back with an atheist and talk about the existence of divine consciousness separate from religion. Once we get to that point, then we can start talking about which religions have more elements of truth, because I don't even believe Judaism has 100% truth. Um, I believe we could have, um, but there's a, quite a number of, of Orthodox rabbis I've studied with that have even mentioned how the Torah itself is not in the correct, uh, the correct order. It was somehow rearranged slightly. Um, and I believe they, they said that that was uh, at the time of the reconstruction of the, te of the second temple, um, Ezra and Nehemiah's uh, time. Um, because they found the scrolls, but they were not preserved. Uh, the people had gone so far astray before that time that what they found was hidden away. And so when Ezra the scribe started reassembling everything, with, prof with prophetic influence, um, and it's very important to note this, because he lived at the time of the, of the Great Assembly, and the men of the Great Assembly included quite a number of people who had prophetic experiences, which made their way into the, to the Tanakh. And so the idea that it was reconstructed out of pure human uh, ingenuity or anything like that uh, it doesn't ring true to me. Um, I believe that the divine hand was involved and the reason that so many prophets were alive and were part of that same assembly was so that it would be put together the way it was supposed to be put together. Similar with uh, the, the uh, um, Shemini Atzeret, or no, not Shemini Atzeret. Um, what was it? Uh, actually, I lost my train of thought. Um, but, um, the the idea that uh, we're misinterpreting is definitely one that the atheist can put out there. But if we're not talking with the same language, then the debate is pointless. And so when they talk about God, they're talking about this finite yet all-powerful being that they usually define based on Christian parameters because most of the time they come from that background. I've met a couple of atheists that were Jewish um, and they still seem to have attacked the same kind of ideas. This idea of infinite creative causal energy is not one that anybody dismisses. Whether that energy is creative and conscious is what the is where the debate comes down to. Um, just using evolution and uh, multiple world theory, I can give you an argument that proves the existence of what some would call a god. If you believe in the standard models of evolution, any of them really, and you believe in multiple world theory from quantum phys from theoretical physics, which is being more and more and more experimentally proven by the way, then in an infinite number of universes, you have to have 
a consciousness reach a point that the average human would call God. But if we extract ourselves and abstract this even one more degree, why wouldn't there be an infinite causal consciousness that's simultaneously comprehending and processing all of the possible solutions, all of the possible occurrences, all of the possible realities? And this is actually what Hasidus and Kabbalah teach, is that we are the thought of God. As long as he's thinking about us, then we exist. How much does an infinite mind think of? To me, the very fact that physics is showing more and more evidence for alternate universes makes me think that anytime math and physics start getting into infinities, I start thinking of God. Because you're talking about something that is boundless. You're talking about something that is not clearly defined. And if it's boundless and it encompasses everything and consciousness is clearly something in the universe we don't understand consciousness it's a very very mysterious subject in the the study of psychology it's supremely fascinating we understand now that there is most assuredly with experimental evidence uh i would recommend uh any of our listeners Checking into, um, uh, I want to say it was Project Noosphere, N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E, -E, uh, or the Global Consciousness Project to, to see what I'm talking about. Um, or if they want to go back and read some older papers, they could get into some of Princeton's uh, PEAR project. Sounds like the fruit, but it's an acronym. Um, all of those had concrete experimental results that showed that consciousness has some impact on the physical world. Now, we're not talking about experimental results that would explain, you know, X-Men level sci-fi type, you know, agency of the mind. But what we are seeing is that whenever there's a significant uh, event in the news, we see these random number generators that they use that are in this experiment. They only generate ones and zeros. And because they're only a, a binary system, you would expect that given any significant period of time, you'll get half zeros, half ones with a little bit of deviation. What they found was that whenever something significant happens and it makes the whole world's news, the deviation becomes very noticeable. Um, and so you end up with something like 30% one and 70% zeros or vice versa. And what that all means, they haven't figured out yet. But it shows that there is some sort of strange interface between people becoming aware of something and the electrical field of the earth. So that alone shows that, yes, physics responds to consciousness. We could also dive back into the idea of uh, the collapse of the wave function in quantum physics. All, par all subatomic particles usually focus on light when we, when we talk about this, but um, they exist in this wave state of super possibility. And so to measure one, you lock it into the state that you measure it at. I know this sounds weird, but let's say you have a hydrogen, which only has one proton and one electron. 
we have absolutely no idea where the electron is on that hydrogen until we measure it. When we're not measuring it, it acts as if the electron is in all of the possible uh, orbits that it can possibly be in around that proton. As soon as we measure it, it's in one. And so it had previously existed in this super possible, there's this, uh, this super uh, position where it was acting as though it was in all of the possibilities. But as soon as conscious human minds begin to interact with it, it locks into a single one. This is called the collapse of the wave function. It confused and still confuses many scientists. There's different interpretations of it. There is an atheistic interpretation of it. Um, but the very observance of reality causes it to fixate and become what we see. Combine that with what is going on with the, the Global Consciousness Project and all of those things I mentioned previously, and we can see that consciousness has a direct impact on the physical world. Is that what prayer is? Is, that's what, is that what meditation is? is? Is that how the miraculous occurs? To a certain degree, according to the Kabbalists, yes. Um, we also see similar thoughts taken from all of the magical practices around the world. Um, this idea that the uh, psycho-spiritual self has power over the physical self, mind over matter, is so ancient and has so much testimony that you would have to be extremely biased to reject all of these human beings throughout history and their experiences of the supernatural. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to immediately accept the proposition of an infinite, simultaneously transcendent and eminent and personal God. But it does definitely put a huge crack in the ideas that atheism and materialism use as a foundation. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Hinduism in the beginning of, of what you were saying, because when I studied transcendentalism, they were reacting against uh, Protestantism and they were looking at the Eastern perspectives and mm -hmm. they brought up the, the Brahman and the idea of, of, you know, more free flowing spirituality. And as you mentioned, the atheist movement likes to attack Christianity And we see people either revert back to Christianity or uh, still have very Christian ideas when they join the Jewish uh, people because it's so concrete. Like even the idea of God being an old man sitting in a cloud, even though it never really says that, it's only allegorical or um, they kept on using this term in, in my uh, analogous language where mm. – you call God a father because it's, a, it's analogous to the son or whatever. The, mm -hmm. and, and they get done saying, you know, a lot of people have a problem with the idea of God as a father because it's so patriarchal and so misogynist mm -hmm. and this and that. And I was like, you know that that's just a concept. It's, it's like something that we can relate to. It's not like a fixed idea that he's a father. That There's the component that, that he has attributes that are father-like and also that are mother-like. 
But if you get fixated on this idea that God can only be a father, then you're limiting God and you're also destroying the, the analogy. Like now is um, it turns in an old man in a cloud. And that is, there's an image of that in the book of Daniel that has been overly exploited in art and that has kind of created problems with people's ideas. But when you start thinking about it, like the way you're talking about where God is, is the, the source of life and the, and, and this is the other thing that people uh, need to think about is that the only reason to believe in a God that makes sense to me is to believe in a, in a God that is good and that has attributes that are positive. Because if he's not a good God, a merciful God, a God full of love and, and compassion, then the whole universe would collapse. Like right. there's, there's so much positivity in the sense of, you know, when they say that it's all chaos, it's chaos if you look at it from a certain perspective. But if you look at it from it being able to cohesively exist and regenerate itself, and it's like just thinking about the sun, how is it that the sun doesn't just burn up because it's, it combusts all the fuel in it? Like there's so many other things that are happening that we are not even aware of or there are, in the atomical level or whatever, that for all that to exist and coexist and interact with, there has to be some type of, of like someone who came up with the idea of it. And, and I, I don't even go into other dimensions and other worlds because like I can't even comprehend that stuff. But if you are able to go there with science and with all different theories, then it becomes even more complex and more difficult to imagine that it, it wouldn't have some type of cohesive force behind it and just looking at a cell or a tiny organism and the complexity they have is 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 unmanageable to dismiss that as just uh, random and it just happened uh if you give it enough time all kinds of different things can come about to me that's that's again is although scientists say that the simplest explanation is usually the, the correct one. The universe is not simple. It's very complex, even in its minute level. So it just keeps on baffling the mind that, that it would all have um, exist and, and, ha and thrive and, and have the ability to keep going without something or someone uh, keeping an eye on it and, and like refreshing it. So, um, but I think that the concreteness of certain types of, of religion give people comfort. Like you were saying, um, you know, before we started the show, we were discussing how the reason that conspiracies become very prevalent is because people want to control uh, their surroundings and, and what's going on in the world. So sometimes, uh, defining God with systematic theology or with some type of, of concrete way of, of putting him in boxes gives mm -hmm. people the idea of like, well, if I can figure out why God created the universe and how he relates to humans and his, the complexity of his person and stuff like that, then I'm in, in right standing before him. It's like a very Greek idea that, you know, if I have the right ideas then in the heavenly realm, I'm, I'm in a good place. Like I'm, I'm part of God's uh, master plan. But what our faith and, and many faiths um, 
acknowledges that we are so limited and we can only apprehend God, but we can never fully comprehend him. So I think that the mm-hmm. most uh, staunch religious people you run into are the ones that think they have it all figured out. Yeah, Has that been sure, your experience? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the thing is that kind of hubris occurs on both sides because you have absolutist thinking and, you know, maybe for another episode in the future, like dealing with that kind of, of, of adamancy is probably important. Uh, it's the exact contradiction of humility. Uh, you're claiming to know something with absolute certainty that you can't possibly know with absolute certainty. And on the, the, the only reason that I feel like the atheist has to go far more extreme with that is because at least for the religious, there's usually some kernel experience in their life that made them so adamant that they believe. Um, not always. Sometimes it's just tradition and they're, they're obsessed with their tradition and they refuse to believe that they could possibly be wrong. Uh, I've met those people too. But that I, pa- I can't be wrong kind of attitude. Um, there's no possible way that this other suggested idea could possibly be more accurate than my understanding. I mean, that's almost a claim to being divine yourself in a, in a silly sort of way. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I got into an argument with an atheist that I was friends with, still friends with her. Um, she's not an atheist anymore. <laughs> but, uh, I said to her, so you're saying that there's no such thing as God. She's like, absolutely no such thing. And I was like, okay, there's no gold in China. And she's like, what? I was like, yeah, there's absolutely no gold in all of China. She's like, that's ridiculous. And I was like, have you ever been there? She's like, no. And I was like, well, how do you know? And it clicked. And she was like, Okay, I see what you're saying, but there's no evidence for God. And I was like, lack of evidence does not prove or disprove something. It leaves it open-ended. And this is one of the reasons that metaphysics in general, when discussed in uh, philosophy, is understood to be something that's not fully provable. It's only something that we can logically try to wrestle with. We can't test it. We can't measure it with... Uh, you know, a spectrometer or, or a scale or anything remotely like that. And so we can use reason and logic and experience to try and understand those things. And that's actually what Kabbalah systematizes, is methods to have certain experiences, to see the world in a certain way. And by using the same language and, and understanding things from this same uh framework this same infrastructure it gives you sort of a roadmap to place things and understand things um and uh, you know i i i don't claim to be you know some master kabbalist that has the whole universe figured out uh there was a, a moment during intense meditative practices seven years ago almost eight years ago eight years ago in april um where i felt like i did download information and that information did turn out to be factually true but while it felt like i had suddenly been given the keys of the universe it was only scratching the surface 
it was such a small amount of information, but it felt like I had absorbed so much. And so I don't think that the human mind is capable as long as we are in this base course state of material materiality to actually experience and remember all of the things that go on in the upper worlds. And this is part of the reason that all of the Kabbalistic books and a lot of the Hasidic texts speak of things in sort of a coded language. Um, especially the older books, they're actually written in code. Uh, that is not a, a guess. That's not an assumption. Every Kabbalist will tell you that. Every Hasid will tell you that. Um, and they, there's reasons for that, which we can address in a future episode. But in general, what I'm getting at is that people can make whatever claims they want about somebody else's position and somebody else's argument. But until you've examined it from their perspective, understood their definitions, semantics are very important in a debate. I've heard more people get into explosive fights over the fact that they misdefine something one to the other. And so, you know, and with science, that's, that's very, you know, that's a huge step in science is that we make sure that we are all sharing the same definitions. If we say a specific word in science, we mean a very specific thing. And with philosophy, it's similar if you're getting into formal philosophy. But when you're getting into the average person just talking about what they believe and feel and think, they don't have that same infrastructure, that same vocabulary of specialized jargon to, to try and sort things out. And so when they're trying to explain something, whether it's their, their reasons to disbelieve something I believe or whether it's their reason to agree with me, I need to, we, we all need to work on trying to understand what that other person's perspective is. And uh, I believe that um, responsive dialogue is very important for that. Well, and I want to end that note. Um, that could be another topic we discussed, but uh, the idea of human beings may, being made in the image of God, uh, mm -hmm. it just baffles the mind that, and, and Rabbi Asher Mesa that I interviewed on my other program brought it up in, in one of his latest um, shows that how can someone love God and have a relationship with the creator and then disparage their fellow man? And some people make caveats. It's like, well, that other person is not part of my religion or they're right. not my brother or whatever. And it's just obnoxiously foolish to have a high view of God and a low view of humanity. Even though mm -hmm. humans are very flawed and sometimes they disappoint you or there are people who are evil and uh, despicable, there should always be a sense of dignity and respect. And, you know, in, in the world that we live in now, it's become cool to, to bring people down or to uh, dismiss them or to insult them. And, and, and from a sense of superiority, from a sense of, feeling that you have the right understanding of whatever topic and that you have either God or righteousness or whatever uh, ideology to back you up. But the most basic sense of spirituality for me, and, and again, we can discuss this further some other time, is the sense of seeing the, 
the the beauty of God in in the eyes of, of a stranger. Um, I remember visiting a, an Orthodox synagogue, and there was this elderly man that they walked in, and every time he would shake someone's hand, he would kiss his his own hand. And I asked my friend, "Hey, why is he doing that?" And he's like, "Because he sees you as like a living masusa, like." You have God within, and when when He touches you, He feels love for God. And I thought that was beautiful. I, I think that that's where I broke out of, of my uh, blinders when it came down to thinking that only religious people were um, worthwhile. When I met atheists, agnostics, just random people who were kind, who were loving, who were respectful and and consistent that you meet religious people who who are terrible people and you're like, what's going on? You know, I I I was brought up with this idea that people that, that know God have God in their hearts and then I see them act a fool and then I meet people who don't have God and they're just the kindest, sweetest people in the world. And then you can say, oh, well, they're faking it or they're just doing it because, you know, it makes them, you know, be loved by others. But there's genuine people who are reflecting God in their daily lives and they don't even know it. And there's people who claim they know God and they have nothing to do with the creator that I experience and the one that gives me hope. Uh, so if we can end with that, um, where do you think the disconnect comes from? You know, it's interesting because uh, in sociology, there's the looking glass self theory in social psychology and sociology, um, which basically says that our idea of who we are comes from our interactions with others. And so every person that we interact with is like a mirror to ourself. And this is the same exact concept of what Zelem Elohim means. Zelem Elohim means that we are the, the reflection, the mirror, the shadow, the projection of God. And so Every time we deal with one another, we're dealing with Hashem, as well as another person. And yet Hashem is within everything. And so we're always dealing with Hashem. I'm sitting here in my apartment alone. When we are done with this podcast, I will still be in this room with Hashem. I can't escape him. Um, The paradigm that... uh, we are so intertwined intimately with him is one that's reflected all through Hasidus, all through Kabbalah and just here and there throughout Judaism in general, all through its history. But one of the interesting things that I wanted to point out was there was a situation where uh, Rabbi Hillel was asked if he could summarize the entire Torah while standing on one foot. And it's a famous story. Uh, he ultimately summarized it with love your neighbor as your man, as yourself. And the rest is commentary. It was the Shema and that. Um, the Shema itself is really inclusive of all of the commandments. We, we know from history, Hillel and others, uh, Yeshua even, uh, for the Christians, Jesus uh, actually did emphasize the Shema and 
the the hafta of uh, to, to love your fellow man as yourself. I remember when I was Christian, they defined the first as a vertical love and the second as a horizontal love, and they emphasized the cross thing. Truly, though, it's ridiculous because ultimately the Shema, that Echad at the end of the Shema, that oneness, is the oneness of seeing Hashem behind every single thing we ever experience. When we can see that and when we can draw the love out of that, when, when we go through something rough and we can find the, the, the good in it, it transforms the entire experience. Sometimes we can't find them. Uh, yesterday was the anniversary of my brother dying two years ago. Can't find good reason personally for why he had to go other than the fact that it ended his suffering, which was very long uh, and ongoing. Uh, but why not heal him? Why not provide a miracle? Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Again, that's just me trying to push my desires, my will as this little fragmented piece of divine light. But the big picture, it's always good. And the reflection of God shines through even the most wicked. We look back and we see Balaam, the, the false prophet, and he was hired to curse Israel. He couldn't do it because he was still drawing his power and his communication from God. He wasn't it, it, dealing with that issue is a whole nother lesson, but like, the point I want that I'm trying to focus on is that he was not a good guy, and ultimately he ended up blessing Israel. And you know we have so many stories from the 1940s in Germany of and throughout the Third Reich uh, of people who were not necessarily good people doing incredible things to save us. And I don't believe for one minute that Hashem will not reward that. Now, whether that reward is in this life or the next, whether uh, they are saved in the Christian evangelical way, uh, which, you know, is that even a thing? Like, um, or, you know, whether what, what kind of share in the world to come they'll have, you know, that is, I believe, dependent on a whole lot more factors than any one person can try and sum up. And so, you know, with the exception of ridiculously, obviously wicked people, I reserve all judgment belonging to God. I don't want any of it for myself. It's not my place to, to issue that kind of judgment. If Hashem wants something done clearly and it's really dark and negative, like, you know, wipe out all of these people because they're Amalek, then I need massive proof. Like, that's not something that I would ever believe unless there was a mountain of evidence. And so with an atheist who has not reached even their minimum level of evidence that they require to believe God even exists, uh, I... I see it as a difference in standards of evidence is what I see. They are expecting to see the kinds of miracles that I've seen while they have had a more mundane experience. And 
it's not my place to say why they've had that. Uh, you said yourself that you've not had any of those kinds of experiences. That's between Hashem and the individual. And the reason that he does do things for some, I don't believe has to do so much with the individual as it does with the situation. Um, I think there's definitely a, a role that's played, uh, but that gets into Kabbalah, Hasidus, and, and discussions on consciousness, not so much on theism versus atheism. We're going to leave it there for this uh, round of, of, of the discussion related to the existence of God. And we have uh, other interesting topics coming up where we'll discuss you know, where does uh, Jewish identity come from and, and can anybody claim it? Uh, what are Jewish views of, of demonology and other mystical uh, perspectives? And most of all, we want to hear from the people listening to this podcast. You know, tell us what what are the things that, that draw attention to you? And, you know, we're welcoming people from all different backgrounds, but there's this, this sense of um, knowing your own um, understanding of God. I, I feel that there's a lot of miseducation or, or misinformation going around and And also a, a lack of intellectualism or the desire to to grow even more and, and go deeper into these subjects. So um, we we want to make sure that, that these topics are, are covered in a deep way and that we keep, um, you know, researching and learning new things. So then we, we don't become those those area people who think they have it all figured out. It's all a work in progress and, and we're part of that. Absolutely. So thank you for, for listening to, to the first edition of Ancient Paths. And uh, in the future, we're going to discuss how we can help people connect with these resources uh, with our background and with our, um, you know, our journeys. We hope that, that we can encourage other people to, to connect with the, the uh, wisdom as well.